Hello and welcome to another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Van Eyck. And in this episode, I interview a young lady who is a big advocate for the regional and rural swimming industry. My guest, Danielle Taylor, started her swimming journey in her small country town of Alpha, which is about 14 hours west of Brisbane. Danielle developed her swimming ability in the town's seasonal pool and then was given the opportunity to swim for a bigger squad when she moved to Brisbane for boarding school. After her swimming career, Danielle moved on to university and studied medicine and has completed her master's in public health. Danielle draws on the information she has learned outside the pool to enhance her swim school and the local community. The eight-week swimming program her swim school provides is complemented with her presenting skills when she offers training courses which helps residents stay safe and respond to emergencies. In 2019, Danielle received the prestigious Swim Australia Swim Teacher of the Year Award and her swim school, the Alpha Swim School, won the Swim Australia Outstanding Community Service Award. I'm pleased to be able to share Danielle's story and her views on regional and rural swimming industry. So please share your thoughts on Danielle's interview on our Facebook page, The Aquatic Mentors. Now, if you want to share your aquatic story, please contact me via email at regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. So that's regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. And let's jump right in and find out all about Danielle's journey in swimming. Danielle, how did you start your journey in swimming? I think like most people in the industry, I started my swimming journey as a swimmer in a small country town called Alpha in central western Queensland. So we're 14 hours west of Brisbane, so about 300 people in the town, so it is very small. I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to have Dad as coach at the time. Um, and... I think that answer requires a swimmer who's had their dad as a coach to <laughs> say if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But competitively going through the competitive swimming environment, when I hit 10 years upwards, I was the only competitive swimmer left in our squad that was like state level. So I was basically training by myself. And I suppose that was a lot of the drive that gave me then to make sure kids out west in our area had more exposure to swimming and exposure to lessons. Yeah, so that's where everything started. That's amazing. And I do like that it is up to the individual swimmer whether it was good to work with their parents or not. (laughs) I I, I think it also depends on the personalities. I think we're very similar in certain ways. So I think mum definitely had to referee a lot of fights (laughs) coming home from the the swimming pool. We got there. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) But it'd be great to be able to share that connection and share that time with your family and with your father. And, yeah, to share your achievements with him as well. Definitely. We're very close. We probably work, we both work at the pool or in programs still now together. And if it wasn't for all of our don't think that we probably would have, we would have different industries would have definitely taken the interest. Yeah, yeah. 
And coming from a small country town myself, it's great to speak to you on that and to know that there are other people out there that that sort of thing has made a difference. Like you said, you know, being the only competitive swimmer at your age, to be able to offer that back to kids and them to be able to experience it, it's fantastic the work that you're doing because if you're not offering that, then they're not getting it at all and they're not getting the skills and the the encouragement and the support that swimming can provide. Well, definitely. And the one thing we talk about swimming or that we see is mental health awareness in sport. And we talk about swimming, all the social benefits. So for, for what we're seeing at the moment in the Central West is kids are dropping off in that 13, 14, 15 age group. And it's purely because there's not enough people in the water in squad and it's not social for them. Swimming up a black line can be... Not not mentally tough, but it, it does get lonely. So I think bringing that awareness out here as well is important. Yeah, and I was just about to say that. I mean, how are your numbers in regards to competitive swimming? We've had a drop-off here, as all swimming has. What's it like for you guys? Uh, we're definitely struggling. I think our all of our clubs are very bottom-heavy. So we might have... It's, some of the bigger clubs in the area might have 60 kids. 40 of them would be under eights. Okay. Yeah. And then by the time you get to, to the teenagers, you might have one or two in every age group. Where okay. we are, we're, we're unlucky that we're a preschool year 10 school. However, all the kids, once they hit year seven, actually get funding to go to boarding school. Wow. So we lose all of our We lose the majority of our kids with any potential because they go to boarding school once they hit 11, 12 years old. So oh, we wow. Very much, we very much are a primary club at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a really interesting. I never thought of it that what, yeah, the work you put in and then you lose them. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate in one way, but at the same time, I think the ones who show potential also deserve those extra services that yeah. you can't offer out west. Like we talk about closing the gap. But there's only so many things that you can do to close, to close yeah. the gap. Yeah, that's a great point, a really good point. And unfortunately in the country areas, there are limitations. It's just the way it is. And to be able to then offer them and extend it. And I suppose looking at it, the amazing feeling it would give you if someone, a kid that you've put all that work in to start them off, they then went to boarding school and excelled at swimming and did really well. It would give you a great sense of achievement as well. It definitely does. And I think coming from a smaller club environment, you become a family. So even though you do lose them, they're here every school holidays. They want to get back back and, and see you and train in your pool or, you know, jump in a lane and they're then they're doing it by themselves, which is great to see. Yeah, yeah. And then you're there to help them. And that you can also use it as a support network for the other swimmers coming up, role models and as work and things on holiday programs. So yeah, that helps a lot. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your swimming journey? Oh, the biggest lesson. Oh, I suppose that the biggest lesson I've learned that learning is a continual journey. If you're going to enter the aquatic industry, do not think you're going to learn everything overnight and be set to go and that you don't need to to continue learning because that's definitely not the case. I suppose now being a trainer, 
and seeing people that come through training courses sometimes in that younger age group that's what you you see come through so I think that was my biggest lesson and I suppose another one was I came out of year 12 and went straight into uni and started studying medicine did my master's in public health afterwards and I always considered those studies separate to the aquatic industry or separate to what I was doing in the water and it wasn't until when I started my public health degree and really understand public health preventions and, and injury prevention how they could be combined and how that we draw from all our other experiences and how it can make us better teachers in the water. So I really like that and I think the same way myself that there's a lot of experiences you can do out of the water and have out of the water that you can then bring into your teaching. I know I'm currently doing my life coaching course and the things that I'm learning through there about learning styles, how to relate with people is really going to enhance my swimming if we get back this year. And I really like that. I think anything can be turned into some sort of experience for the aquatic industry because there is such a diversity in the aquatic industry. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. So I suppose for me, with my Master of Public Health, I ran a lot of the behavioural change, change of behaviours, change of habits. It really made me think how our programs, especially in rural areas, really need to influence those change of behaviours, not just teach the kids the life skill. Yeah, I really like that because a lot of the time you're connecting with them in a non-stressful environment so they can really connect with you a lot closer. And it's a great opportunity to develop those skills and expand and to be able to give them that life skill but also change of habits and understanding as well. Definitely, yeah. Good work. And I think that's really good. We were talking earlier about the work that you did when you won your award with ASTA last year and the program that you ran and you went and got all the funding and you developed that program And I think that's fantastic because it brought the community together and when you're going through such a struggling time of drought and to be able to make that connection, it's not just about swimming, it's about bringing the community together and giving them other opportunities. I I think any program in a rural area, to be successful, integrating different aspects of the community is very important. Being able to be multidimensional definitely is something that you have to master. So for us, when we run any type of program, whether it's a first aid awareness program or a CPR or simply eight weeks of swimming lessons, we're tapping on the organisations that we know that we could get some support from. So every school in the area, whether it's a distance ed or a state school, uh, the council or our local government has been very supportive We've been very strong advocates in that space and they've really bought in to, to what we've been selling, I guess, in, in that space. The swimming club, even though we focus now a lot on drowning prevention and not so much the competitive swimming environment, bringing getting the swimming club to buy into, hey, yes, you want swimmers to be able to join the club and, and perform, but they need to be able to have those life-saving skills as well. 
and ideally for them to see if they can get that learn to swim pathway, that's extra swimmers that they then have for their, their club activities as well. And then strangely, some other community groups like our local cricket clubs or uh, our camp draft association, just being able to get them to relate to their participants the importance of swimming activities as well. It just makes buy-in easier. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. I mean, it's involved. It's fitness for everyone. So your cricket, your camp, camp drafting. Um, we found here with football and netball, pre-season football, netball training makes a big difference. And it's just getting them involved. It's a sport for everyone. It's an activity for everyone. And like you said, that you can use that flow of learn to swim through to competitive swimming if they can get that connection. I just think it's great with the rural areas, we've got to be able to work together and connect because that's where your clientele is going to come from. Definitely, yeah. We've, we've got a couple of sister communities where we see the learn to swim and the clubs not have that connection. And then you can, from an outside looking in, you totally understand why their numbers are where they are and, and makes you value the connection that we have all the more. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And it's good that people are willing to work together to expand that. So looking through your career in swimming, whether it be your competitive side, your learn to swim or your teaching side, what's been the biggest highlight for you or has there been a few? I suppose the biggest highlight for me, it's my son cheesy, is always going to be that six, eight, nine-month-old kid that does a teddy bear and falls and then gets back to the wall for the first time and seeing the look on the mother's face, that's, even though it's not the biggest highlight, that's always going to be the biggest highlight in my eyes. There's those little personal moments and those connections you make with the kids along the way. I suppose the Swim Australia Asker Award, my personal award last year, the Swim Australia Teacher of the Year, was definitely a major highlight for me and our swim school community award I think I held the community award even higher than my personal award mainly because it was such a team effort and not just the swim school but the whole community that that created that. Yeah and those awards are great for recognition and to make you realise what you're doing is good especially for I mean I found in country areas a lot of the time it's sort of not recognised and being that it's not such a big industry, it's great to be able to have that connection and that um, emphasis on what you do and know that you're doing it right, especially like us when we're doing such a boutique sort of program or a completely different program to what most do. Yeah, I think people definitely underestimate that what works in metro areas doesn't work in rural areas and until that's understood by the people at the top in those primary decision-making roles, the groups at the bottom need to make more noise. I think ultimately, until we get equal representation, we're not going to make sustainable change. But until then, we can just all do our part and make as much noise as possible, I guess. So that's exactly it. That's really true. We do, as regional areas, need to get up and and make our stand and make ourselves heard because 
we're not such a large part of the aquatic industry, but it doesn't mean that we don't exist. We need to be able to connect, be connected and be heard. And our part of the industry needs to be understood as well. So I really like what you said then. And hopefully the big wigs are going to be sitting there listening to what you've said and make a bigger effort to connect with us and connect with our journeys in the rural areas as well. I hope so. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> You've started the ball rolling. We'll see. Hopefully. We'll, we'll, we'll cross our fingers and cross our toes. Yeah, that's right. So was there anyone that played a big role? You've mentioned how your father taught you and instructed you through your swimming journey. Anyone else or how did your father make a big impact on what you did? It was strange. At the time, we did have a club coach. And when I started, they actually had more older swimmers than younger swimmers. So as a six, seven-year-old, I was swimming with the 10-year-olds. I suppose that kind of boosted my swimming journey. But then when I hit eight, she was moving or we needed another coach. And Dad was training racehorses at the time. And just figured that training his daughter swimming would be exactly the same as training a racehorse. (laughs) So that's how the transition happened. I don't know if he would agree that it was easier or harder. I think I think we'll both agree that it was definitely harder. That's how that, that happened. I suppose without his passion, I think anything he does, he needs to not be a perfectionist, but he puts his all into it. And I suppose that's where my attitude also comes from in that respect. Like seeing the dedication he put into me or into the other swimmers at the time is my my drive now. I've been lucky, I suppose, to have a number of coaches. I went to boarding school in year 10. I actually had a swimming scholarship from when I was in year, when I hit year five, so when I was like eight or nine that I never went to Brisbane for. I didn't end up leaving till I was 15 because I had some medical issues that I decided to stay home close to the family with. So Tim Taylor down at Fairhome, had the exact same drive and passion as dad. And I suppose from being away from family the first time at boarding school, just that family environment that that club gave me as well just reminded me so much of home. And so every time I think of the aquatic industry now, even though I know a lot of clubs aren't like that, I just struggle to not understand why because that's all I've been exposed to is that sense of family or, or drive of passion. Yeah, I suppose. And also, even though they directly didn't have influence on me, we had, at the time, CQ Swimming was driven by Dave Greaves and Tracy Spreadbrough through my competitive time in the Central West. And even though, as a kid, I didn't directly have contact with them, looking back now, all the development activities we had in the area it makes you appreciate the effort that they put into the rural areas. And now as an adult or a member of the board coming through, you want to give that same back to the kids because you've seen the hole that can be created when that's not there. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And, you know, I think swimming can be a family environment and in the country, you know, you're teaching friends, kids, teaching people that you've been brought up with for years so it does become a family environment because you know everyone and it makes a great team if you can build that family environment it means everyone's supported especially these days with the younger kids having a lot of trouble with mental health 
to be able to support them and grow them and bring them through those times as a family, it makes a massive difference. Definitely. I hope some of my um, Lonesome families are listening because all I want to say is we need more dads around pool deck, okay? Dads need to be on pool deck more. <laughs> Other than that, I totally agree with the, the family atmosphere that a pool creates in a rural area. It definitely is somewhere... I don't know about other rural areas, but we see so much in our modern time now that every rural event involves alcohol. Yeah. And I think events at a pool are one of the few remaining activities that our society like participates in that doesn't have, that has a family atmosphere, but doesn't involve, involve alcohol. It's just nice to be able to see the parents and the kids all mesh together and have fun together. So true. I've never thought of it like that, but that is right. It's the only one that you can, yeah. you know, football, yeah, netball, so, yeah. even cricket has it. But. Yeah, off to, the, off to the races, off to the camp draft, everything, everything has an alcohol aspect for us in our rural area at the moment, um, apart from the pool, which is good to see. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it is a family environment. I love going to the local pool and seeing the, the family days, all the, the pool party days that they bring the inflatable, the whole family's there. The parents are always going, man, I didn't know my kid could go across that inflatable. Oh, I didn't know they could swim that far. And dad watched this. And yeah, no, I can, yeah, definitely say that it makes a difference. It's definitely, the pool's definitely the hub of any small community, no matter what community or small community you're in. It's the hub. Like, that's, that's where everyone goes to after school or, or where the weekend activities are. And some of that might be because there's no cinema down the street or, you know, we don't have a multitude of sports to pick from. But the pool is the hub of the year. Yeah, yep. I always one girl at our pool. So in rural, well, these pools, when you're 10 years old, you can go there by yourself. And this one girl, once she hit 10 years old, she just lived at the pool every year nearly every day she'd go to the pool she's now become a lifeguard and she's off doing her year 11 and they know her by name they're just like yep we know what she can do the lifeguards that have gone throughout the years that she's been there just know and she just walked straight in and it's amazing watching getting kids like that that just live at the pool over so it can be teenagers and it can be families yeah definitely definitely so what advice would you give to a new swim teacher and new coach coming through the system now? Oh, in preparation for this, I actually got onto some of my learn to swim teachers. And I was like, what, what advice did I give you when, when you started? Or, um, <laughs> I love that. Should I, or, what advice, or what advice should I have given you? Like now <laughs> looking back because we're rebuilding staff at the moment. And I think... Definitely teachers need to understand that learning never stops. I think that's the one advice. If there's one take-home message I would like anyone entering the industry to take is that learning never stops. And even though you might have been teaching for 20 years, you can always learn something and there's always a better way to do something. I'm a learner fanatic. I've just finished my master's and for some stupid reason has just signed on to a PhD and now studying oh. law. So, wow. so I, I, I love to learn and I think that that's definitely something you need to understand if you're going to join this in the industry, that learning never stops. If you work for me, 
in your lifetime, you need to understand how that we're not going to get along if you don't eat proto frogs. Proto frogs is life. So I think that's a good piece of advice for some, some teachers out there. <laughs> get that chocolate fix. Proto, proto, frog, proto frogs is life. And if you want me to do anything for you, proto frogs is also currency. Oh, perfect. Great. I'll remember that. I've written my note. <laughs> That, that's pretty much it. I'm pretty cheap to, to get to do anything for the frogs. <laughs> Other than that, I think, look, if you're going to enter the industry, I think having that family approach is also important as well. Like wanting to establish that connection with students or establish that connection with parents. Without that connection with parents, you're only going to get half the job done. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And it is, it's connecting with her parents, especially in the rural areas. Again, I find, like I said, you either know the parents or you know of the family. So it is a family environment, but connecting with them and being able to learn to connect with them in a different way. The fact that you're not connecting to them as a friend, you're connecting to them as their kid's swim teacher or a business person is a really great thing that you have to learn. Definitely, and I think for us rural and some teachers, that line definitely gets blurred so many times throughout the seasons because there are times you have to have that tough conversation with parents. But as a family friend, you don't want to. So I think I think definitely is a good point that, that people need to be able to understand that sometimes you've got to put your learn to swim hat on or off or personal hat on or off. I really like that. That's good advice. And I'm chuffed for the fact that you went and researched, <laughs> tried to find out <laughs> what advice had been given. I really like that. That was good. Oh, I, was, I, was like, I was like, oh, my God. And then one teacher was like, oh, I don't know if, I, if you'd actually told me what some teaching was, I would have continued. And I was like, oh, oh, dear. I don't know if that's a positive or a negative. It's like, oh, no, no, I, lo- I love it. It's just, yeah, from the outside looking in, I don't think many other industries or people walking by understand how many hours go into doing what we do. Yeah. I think that's definitely something that, um, I don't know, when we're chasing funding for, for programs or when, and that's not just on a local level, that's on like a large-scale state level government organisation, they need to understand how many hours actually go into the final product of, yep. of a great qualified learn teacher. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. It's not just getting kids in the pool and having playtime. I mean, no. that's a big part of it, but there's so much learning, so much understanding that has to go before that to be able to get the kids going. And I think as well, it's a hindrance, but it's also a good thing in the rural areas is that, you know, uni students getting their qualifications and teaching while they're at uni, it's sort of, it's a bit of a hindrance in the industry, but, you know, if we can encourage those kids to keep going and stay in the aquatics somehow, then that, I think, benefits it as well. We we really struggle in our area. I don't know about other areas if they had a similar problem, but we all know that the aquatic industry is built on casual employees. That's what our industry is based on. Yeah. But the cost involved to maintain memberships and insurance and everything in a rural area. Some of our teachers might only be getting four or five hours a week 
and when you're seasonal, that barely covers the cost of, cost of registration. And then add in when some of your te- my some of my teachers travel 80, 90 kilometres to get to the pool, covering the cost of fuel. So I think I don't have the answer. I, I don't know what the, mm. the ultimate fix is, but it's just food for thought. Where are future teachers going to come from? Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. And with, you know, people migrating towards the city areas, you know, it's few and far between now to get people that are that service-minded to be able to take on the role, who are happy to swim, who don't mind being in the water for so long. But there's so much personal development that needs to be done, so much training. Like you said, you've got to have your qualifications, your insurance. And, I mean, I find that to be connected with so many things, there's so many associations out there that give a lot of great help but you know when you're paying 300 or more to be connected to each association it becomes so costly when you're only running through such a short time it it definitely does and then uh, as you said to stay connected so add in the cost of flying to conferences or making that physical connection because no major conference has ever been in a rural location yeah. So, so that's just extra costs that need to be taken into consideration for rural teachers. Yeah, and that's it. You've got, you know, you go to any networking event, any training, you've got training costs, but then you've got accommodation, you've got travel costs included. I mean, that's why I wanted to start presenting because in rural areas you get a lot of volunteer coaches, of volunteer teachers, and they can't afford to... You know, they've got day jobs, they can't afford to be travelling for a course or getting that personal development. So to bring it out, I think that's where I can. I've got the availability that I can. But a lot of it is at your own personal cost. Definitely, yeah. And I was exactly the same as you. That is pretty much why I started training or offering courses. It wasn't so much as a business decision because I think the cost of keeping our registration definitely is more the money we make on courses at the moment but it's just the ability to get teachers register teachers and supply teachers to other rural communities surrounding us which takes a little bit of the burden off our learners from school that we're not trying to service you know 10 11 small towns in our local area yeah and that's right yeah it takes the burden off everyone it gives people an occupation I mean, even if it is for a short time, it gives them an occupation, their own income. You know, it's great. I find here I've got a few farmers' wives wanting to get involved. And, you know, when kids get to a certain age, they can. They can be independent. So I think it's really great like that. And like you said, to be able to bring it out to communities and develop them, I think it's a good offering. We can do that. Definitely. And it also gives us a little bit of sustainability in our rural areas as well. Because a lot of the programs in the past have just been flying fly out, to use a better analogy, and they don't they don't work. And I think that's just what we've been operating on for the last 10, 15 years. Is if there's a development program for our competitive swimmers, or if there's a program going for multicultural groups, or you name it, it's okay. Here's a four week program. Let's do it. End of story. Or hey, let's go here for the weekend and and learn freestyle. We'll get X, Y and Z out and it's not sustainable in the long run. 
That's a good point. I was talking to a presenter from Tasmania area and I said I'd love to bring out programs especially for for Aboriginal communities, Indigenous communities, as well as that multicultural side. And he said to me, you can't do those sort of things and do it as a flash in the pan. You can't run a program like you said and then that's it. It needs to be a sustainable program that, you know, each year it comes back or it follows the same thing because you give them all that hype and all that training and then just suddenly leave them to it, it's not going to be sustainable for the community. No, definitely not. So I'm really interested to find out your answer to this next question. What does swimming look like for you in the future? I can tell you I'm not going back to my competitive days. That's definitely <laughs> one thing that's definitely set in stone. I was spending no more masters. time on the physio bench. No, no, no masters. I'd be spending definitely more time on the physio bench than what I would be in the pool. Looking forward, even though I keep being drawn back into the, the pool, ultimately where my heart lies is high-level research. So for the next 24 months to four years with PhD, I'm looking at rural injury and, and with that along goes drowning in rural areas and in the neurodevelopmental readiness of our under four cohort will definitely form a large chunk of that research because I think that's something that's not 100% understood. Australia definitely does a lot better job than the rest of the world but I think that's something that can, can be worked on. And advocacy, I think we're where my strength lies at the moment, especially working in that injury space. And I've been lucky enough to present at a few international conferences in that injury prevention space, is advocating for rural and remote drowning and with that, the rural remote aquatic industry. Because funnily enough, I had a, I had a talk to, to Dad. I, we were talking randomly about one of our pools closing in the area and we we're talking about the sustainability of a rural aquatic industry. And he, I think it might have been just a generation thing, because we don't have a rural aquatic industry. And it's just funny how that generation doesn't see pool operations or learn to swim as an industry. It's just something that they love to do. Okay. So I think that from an advocacy spot, I think that's, that's where I will probably spending some time next few years other yeah. than that I, I I don't know where I see myself with the, the blossoming journey <laughs> and I keep being drawn back to the pool but I, I love the kids yeah it's an open book anything could happen anything could happen yeah no I really like that and the research is going to be what we need to be able to develop programs. So for you to be interested in to be able to implement that, that's going to make our industry a lot better. So good work on that. Everything we do, I think it's mainly because I come from a medical background. So everything we do is what we call evidence-based medicine. And it's not really evidence-based medicine when we're applying to the aquatic industry, but it's evidence-based practice. Everything's got to come from and evidence base and the highest level of evidence we can. And the more we look, the more we find that it's, it's expert opinion why we do things. And 
it's funny how different experts have different opinions. So it's like it's gathering all those expert opinions together and, and seeing what is the best, what what can we? And I don't have the answers. I'm sure many people have their idea on what the perfect answer is. But yeah, I'm excited to to move forward. It'll be interesting, and I think, like you said, there are many experts out there, but answers can be different between every different community. So it's hard to get a, an overall answer, but I think developing that and getting more of an understanding and the lines not being so blurred and not being so... It's so full-on in that department. I mean, when you start talking yeah. about drowning, it just gets so bogged down at so much. So to be able to make that a lot clearer, it would be great. I really like how you're looking to promote regional swimming in the regional aquatics industry. Because, yeah, like you said, the, the generation before, it was just a way of life for them, whereas now it has become, as life continues, it has become a business and it has become an industry. There is a divide between metro and rural or regional. So to be able to bring that together, and it's great that you're putting a voice out there for the regional and rural areas. So great work and keep it up. And I reckon we need to get you on boards there's big wig boards out there. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm sure there's a lot better minds and a lot better speakers than me out there, but I'll definitely always share my opinion. Whatever I think my opinion is on something, I, I'm, you will get my opinion when I'm asking. <laughs> no, we need people that are down to earth and see it as, you know, rules do. Um, I, I think especially in the country areas, we get scared off by people who talk the talk or, you know, have all the fancy way of saying things. Someone who can just cut through the crap and say it as it is, to say it in our language makes a real big difference. It definitely does, yes. So my last question for you today is, how as an individual and an industry can we promote and develop learn to swim and competitive swimming to encourage more participants, but do all of that with less funding? Well, we can't. So there's your answer. You you need the funding, but I think it's making the funding work for you, making the funding generate new funding and being creative in where you pull that funding from. Yeah. So before COVID hit, we were actually lucky enough our some school was meant to be on its way to Spain to speak. We had a presentation on the value of local government funding and local government buy-in to programs and how it seems to be a bit of an untapped resource. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying local governments have an endless supply of money to throw around. But as an industry, we need to learn how to advocate our needs or shortcomings and put the pressure on them to promote and to engage with our programs. Because at the end of the day, swimming is not only drowning prevention, it's social social well-being, mental awareness, physical activity, community engagement, there are so many avenues when you apply for funding. Just because you're delivering a, a swimming program doesn't mean you just have to tick that 
that physical education box. Yeah. We've been very lucky in the funding arena. I, I know a lot of areas probably haven't been as lucky, but I think trying to treat your volunteers well because mm-hmm. um, there definitely was times where we did it tough and we didn't have the access to funding. If if we're going to rely on developing programs and promoting something, if without those volunteers, you're going to be lost. Yeah. And without re- maintaining good networking within the industry, you're also going to struggle. Like we've been very lucky in our remote area. We have Michael Bowl and Georgia Bowl volunteer to come out 12 months mm-hmm. ago and that wasn't in a downtime that was in the middle of international swim league so they they were busy so it's just the value of maintaining those relationships and knowing when to ask for help I guess yeah. and it's also knowing when to advocate for funding yeah. So even though the question was how to run the programs without funding, <laughs> I think it goes back to, it always comes back to advocacy for me. I think mm. if, if you can advocate well, then funding does eventually come. You just got to keep putting the, and pressing that button until someone gives. Mm. I'd love to see more of a national stance on rural remote swimming and funding. How, how we get there, I don't know. But I would love to see more of a national interest in, in rural remote swimming. Yeah. And drowning prevention. I really like that because it is, I've had the view for a while, is that, you know, to be able to programs up and running, it becomes the facilities or the community's role to go for the funding. So there is a lot more funding out there for community programs and community services. There's not so much for the national of sport and it's probably out of COVID got to become more of a funding area that you can get those sort of regional rule applications, especially for mental health. So I was speaking to a person about it and I've always had trouble getting those funding. And they said, you know, look how you adapt it. Try for any funding, but using the wording that those funding guidelines have adapt it to swimming so it may not be a swimming related thing but you know it could be a mental health but how does swimming help mental health and it's about looking out the box for these funding opportunities and somehow adapting them to the aquatic industry definitely and for the funding applications we've found what we think we're doing right it might not be that it might not be the the selling factor but it's i suppose the research background that, that I have definitely plays into our, our grant writing. So it's mm-hmm. understanding how to pose our drowning prevention or our mental health awareness and show the gap of why rural Australians deserve it more than that metro-based community group. So not many Australians know, but... Rural Australians, if you live outside of a metro area, you're 6.5 times more likely to drown than your metro counterpart, regardless of age, sex. 6.5 times more likely to drown. You're 65 times more likely to drown in an inland waterway. So if 
you live outside that metro, you're now 65 times more likely to drown in a river. And unfortunately, the majority of dams and rivers and land waterways aren't in metro areas. So it's adapting those things to grant writing as well, I think, that that helps. But trying to do programs on a very low budget, I think really understanding a bottom-up strategic framework helps. So understanding yeah. how to drive things from the bottom community groups, so local CWA and your local swimming club, then getting them to engage the school and then getting the school to engage the council and then getting the council to advocate at that state or, or regional level for you. It's understanding how the bottom generates the momentum, not getting the top to generate the momentum. Yeah, and that's a really good point because, I mean, you've being on the ground is what you see, you see it firsthand and building that up and pushing it and making that noise, like you said earlier, it just then builds and the higher levels will then actually take notice and see. I mean, it's something we've seen here in Victoria with the Golden Square Pool, local pool, Menigo was shutting down. They put a lot of noise out there, got a lot of people involved and from there we had state politicians, you know, taking some role in it. So I think that's really true. It's about starting at the bottom and working their way up. I also think you need to do some sort of training for all of us in regional areas on how to write. I'm more than happy to, to try and help where I can. And I think the more funding we can get in the rural and regional areas, the better we're, we're all off. So... Yeah. Set it up. Beautiful. Online courses, everything will get you happening. Because <laughs> it is, it's, people don't think they have these expertise or, you know, everyone's busy and the last thing they want to do is sit down and write a grant that yeah. they try and have to work everything and word it. And I know I've written grants and I look at it and I think, oh, it's just something missing from it. And just to be able to have that understanding and know it would be absolutely amazing. And every grant application these days seems to be getting longer and longer. And I don't know about everyone else, but it's just a turn-off to sit down and then do a long grant application. So I think it's having that set-out strategy when you, when you apply for any funding and reusing your same strategy every time, it definitely cuts down the hours. And if you're doing it correctly, I think it definitely helps you success, your success rate. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Once you get one, it builds that momentum. And uh, someone else also said to me that, you know, using what grants you've got before as a way of showing that you've had that success, people are more likely to give money to someone who's had that success. And, you know, don't be scared off by sharing those sort of things as well. And the organisations might not like me saying this, but (laughs) knowing how to call Swim Australia or ASCA or Oswin into those grants. So not actually asking for a money donation, but sometimes the name of just knowing that you've been backed by a national organisation when they're not actually on the ground delivering. It, it helps. It, it definitely helps bring some clout to the application. Yeah. I really love that. And I, 
I've got to say, Asker and Swim Australia have been absolutely so supportive to everything we have done out, out in our area, and I don't think we would be able to do half of what we have done without their support. Yeah. Well, I think that's amazing. You've shared so much knowledge with us. People are going to learn so much from listening to this. And like everyone has a great story behind them. And I think your story has just emphasised what we can do in rural and regional areas. And you know, we can make a difference. But I also think we need to get your dad to listen to this. And then he can come on and have his say as well. One <laughs> of you. I'll see if I can set it up. But I don't know much success we'll have but I'll, I'll send him the request and we'll see if his answers differ to, to my answers <laughs> you might just have to ask him and record him sneakily and they'll <laughs> put it out well thank you so much for coming on it's been great to hear about your success and the story behind your journey and people are really going to enjoy learning and connecting with what you've done so thank you You're welcome.